Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you see a building that's on fire, well, what do you do, right? You, you, the first thing you do is you, you call the firefighters. <laughs> you know, they sprinkle water over it. That, that's what you do first. And then you start thinking about all the other problems. And that's also how I think about poverty. I mean, poverty just makes everything worse. There's, there's even evidence that, you know, it impedes your cognitive ability. It impedes your ability to think in the long term, to make plans for the future. Sure, there will always be some people who will waste their basic income. But usually when it comes to richer people, we're not worried about that. We just call it venture capital. And we say, oh, sure, go on and, <laughs> and experiment, try new things. We should consider basic income as venture capital for the people. What could go right? I'm Zachary Carabell, the founder of The Progress Network, and I am joined in our fourth season, as in our previous three seasons, by Emma Varvalukas, the executive director of The Progress Network. And we have been, over the past couple of years, been having a series of conversations with people who we think are compelling figures focused on how we solve our collective problems. Doesn't mean that they are not acutely attuned to those. It doesn't mean that everybody we talk to is cheery and wakes up with a smile on their face about all the daisies and lilies and chirping birds. It just means that they are in their way, embracing a sensibility that is not plunging us into despair, but is instead trying to lift us into a collective future that we want to live in. This is a belief that we have, and I'm, I know I'm being repetitive for those of you who've been listening to some of these, but I, I, I want to be repetitive in that creating a collective sensibility of how we go forward into a future of our hopes, not a future of our fears, is an ongoing work that is more about lots of individuals coming together and lots of organizations coming together. The Progress Network is a collection of individuals and increasingly we hope also a network of networks. So it is trying to build critical mass or be a one of many voices in a critical mass that I believe we believe is an essential component to solving problems and creating that future and that there's some historical precedent for when societies believe that they are able to solve problems, they're more able to solve them than when they're convinced that they can. Full stop. So in that spirit, we're having these conversations and our first interview of the season, Emma will tell you about who he is, but I think in many ways is the perfect iteration of some of these themes that I just attempted to highlight. Today, we're going to talk to Rutger Bregman, who's a historian and an author. 
He's published five books on history, philosophy, and economics. And you may recognize two of them because they were New York Times bestsellers, Humankind and Utopia for Realists. Those have been translated into more than 40 languages. Bregman has also been twice nominated for the prestigious European Press Prize for his work at The Correspondent, which is an online platform he founded that's dedicated to constructive and ad-free journalism. So let's talk to Rutger. Rutger Bregman, thank you so much for joining us and thank you as well for being part of the Progress Network. So you've been doing some, I think, quite compelling work over the past decade plus. A little bit of it in Dutch, which I'm, you know, making my way through really slowly, <laughs> word by word. But the the English translations of uh, of Utopia and of Humankind, I think, have, have struck some real resonance around the world, particularly the latest book. And uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about how you sort of came to, because you're both edgy, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you're certainly not without critique of the systems that we exist in but you're also hopeful. So maybe as a kind of a delve into Rutgers personality for a moment, how do you, how do you square the edgy with the hopeful? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I think that if you go back in history, progressive used to be quite hopeful, actually. If you think about something like scientific progress, that used to be something that progressives were very excited about. But something happened along the way is that when we think about technology today, it's mainly uh, doom and gloom that dominates the conversation. And uh, sure, there are some good reasons for that. But as a historian, I always love to point out that, yeah, we have made extraordinary progress. And it's very easy to lose sight of that, especially if you live in an incredibly rich country. I mean, here in the Netherlands, I recently looked this up. If you have a median wage, you are part of the 3.5 richest in the world, right? We have access to riches that you know, even the King of France in the 17th century couldn't dream of. I think it's really important to have that perspective. And in, yeah, in my work, I've always been interested in the phenomenon of how seemingly unrealistic things can become reality. How do we move from utopia to reality? Uh, how do we actually make the impossible happen? That's been, uh, that's been fun over the years to focus on that question. I wanted to drill in a little bit into that question of how we do exactly make the impossible happen, you know, when it comes to incentivizing human behavior. Mm -hmm. I see this this theme coming up in your work generally uh, is the role of shame, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, it was really interesting for me to encounter that in your work because for me, shame seems like the worst kind of incentivizer, right? But I think you have the opposite perspective. So I would be really curious to hear your case for why shame is a good incentivizer of human behavior. Yeah. Yeah, I really think that shame is a quite useful tool, actually. Uh, We are pretty much the only species in the whole animal kingdom with the ability to blush, which is, I think, a fascinating and telling fact that we involuntarily give away our feelings to other members of our species. And that basically helps to establish trust between one another. I think it's also very disturbing when people are not able to blush anymore. I mean, that's sometimes true when we think about some of our leaders, right? Think of your favorite politician and then think of the last time you saw him or her blush. It's probably a very long time ago. Yeah, I think that shame can sometimes push people in the right directions. So I'll give you a couple of examples from my personal life. I recently turned vegan and it was actually because of my mother, who uh, is 
65 years old, and uh, she'd been eating cheese her whole life. But then she encountered the arguments against the exploitation of cows. And she was like, okay, I'll stop doing that. And then she called me up and she said, Rodger, you pretend to be this, you know, this idealistic author. And I see you going on about all these things on television, but you haven't even turned vegan yourself yet. So <laughs> my mother is very good at shaming me. And that was actually quite effective. It's so funny you bring up the veganism example because I, you know, and I, and I don't mean to insult you in any way. When I think of vegans, <laughs> I constantly think of them being self-righteous and telling me like, why aren't you vegan? Why aren't you vegan? And yeah. for me personally, it shuts me down. But then again, my mom has never called me up and made that argument. So maybe that's diff the difference there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Look, my philosophy would be just whatever works. I think in general, people are often more motivated by, I don't know, the excitement of doing things better. So in the case of effective altruism, for example, it's interesting. You have the philosopher Peter Singer, who already in the 70s published a seminal paper about children drowning in a pond and that people dying in Africa from, say, malaria is morally similar and that we have an obligation to help people very far away. It takes, a, what is it, what, like four or $5,000 to save one life, according to the think tank GiveWell. But that guilt framing of the argument didn't resonate all that much. I mean, Peter Singer was basically on his own for decades, donating half of his salary. People are like, well, that's interesting, Peter, that you're doing that, but we don't really, we don't really do that. We're not like that. And then effective altruism came along, this movement of people, uh, very rational people who uh, know how to improve the world. And they came up with a different framing. Like, yeah, it's actually pretty exciting to do good and to do good in a really effective way. Now, I do have some problems with that movement, especially lately. <laughs> I think the fact that they build a whole movement around this excitement, the opportunity framing of there's just so much you can do, especially if you do it collectively, is, is in the end more effective. So, in, yeah, I see your argument that there are, there are real limits to the power of shame as well. All right. So let's pick up on that, given that it's a provocative topic about uh, not just the specific particular crisis that some of the backers of effective altruism had, particularly in the form of uh, you know, the crypto money and Sam Bankman Fried and the money that had gone into effective altruism. Obviously, effective altruism as a movement precedes the money, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but then the, the ideas attracted the money. There is a, I would say, fraught relationship, right, between the idealism that a lot of people have and a capitalist system that also requires the funding of ideas, right? It, mm -hmm. I mean, ideas, we, we don't live in a world that we lived in a few hundred years ago where there were sort of separate silos between, let's say, ideas, money, power. Those things tend to commingle in today's world. And I'm wondering how, separate from the obvious critiques of sort of pure venality and pure hypocrisy, how one navigates the you know, we do live in a, a world where the more currency ideas have, right, the more backing they have, the more potent they can be, which requires money. I think this has always been an issue. I was recently reading a lecture that Ralph Nader, the great consumer advocate, gave in the 60s, 1968, November, at Harvard Law School. And his message to the students back then was basically, you're about to waste your whole career. You're about to waste your life because you're probably going to work for some, you know, stupid law firm helping big corporations to sell crap to to consumers. That's basically uh, what's probably going to happen. But 
yeah, there is a small chance that you may choose a different direction. And then there was this group of uh, Nader's Raiders. You know, we've all forgotten about this, obviously, because Nader did some not very smart things around the 2000 election. But what, what he did in the 60s and 70s was extremely impressive. At some point, a third of Harvard Law School applied to work with him to basically fight the good fight. So think, for example, the uh, Clean uh, Water Act and the Clean uh, Air Act. I mean, the Clean Air Act has saved millions of lives. And the, the, the fingerprints of, of Ralph Nader students are all over it. But this has always been, been an issue. It's, it's basically often easier to earn a lot of money um, while you're not contributing all that much and vice versa. I mean, it's not always true, but it is quite often true. Um, that doesn't but mean that you should be, how do you say that, as an idealist, you should not be afraid of money or anything like that. If we think of the great movements in history, whether it's abolitionism or the women's right movement or the climate movement, very often there were very wealthy philanthropists who played a very important role in that. Actually, I was recently studying the, the invention of the birth control pill, which was actually financed by a suffragette and a feminist named Catherine McCorning, right? She supplied the money that, that made this incredibly important, maybe one of the most important inventions in all of world history, right? It liberated women, basically, and allowed them to control their own fertility. You don't, you don't have to be afraid of money in that respect. But it, yeah, it's often, it's often a dilemma, I guess, for young idealistic people. In which when they're thinking about the rest of their lives. Rucker, as, as I was listening to you speak, I started thinking about like maybe Nader is a great proponent of the excitement principle that you were talking about. Like if we get people excited about, you know, the change that we can make, we can get mm -hmm. them on board. And then I started thinking about you as a proponent of the excitement principle around taxes, um, which also mm -hmm. relates to this discussion of money that we've been having. And I know that we've had some progress recently in the EU. I'm in Greece, you're in the Netherlands, um, around mm -hmm. the 15% minimum corporate tax rate. So I'm wondering if you can give us your exciting explanation of what's happening right now with taxes and you know, if we're going anywhere at all with that. Of course, yes. Not many people know this, but we're actually making progress in the fight against tax evasion and tax avoidance. There's some pretty good news to share. So in 2019, I was invited to Davos and said some things that they didn't like, and they haven't invited me back. But <laughs> since then, if I just look at my own country, the Netherlands, it used to be a huge tax paradise, especially US corporations had stashed hundreds of billions of dollars in the Netherlands tax-free. And that's basically gone right now. The amount of money that goes through the Netherlands towards, say, Bermuda or the Cayman Islands has been finished completely, like the decline of 85% in the last three years. And what's now going to happen is that other co countries are going to follow. Uh, it's going to be a domino effect because if they don't do that, then for at least profits that corporations will make in Europe, we'll do it ourselves. So if the US doesn't properly implement this minimum corporate tax, it's basically stealing from U.S. taxpayers, or it's basically giving the money to European taxpayers <laughs> in that way, because, yeah, we'll, we'll just stop it up. That's some real progress there because there has been more transparency and some great advocacy by experts like, for example, Gabriel Zuckman or Thomas Piketty, etc. So it's, this is a funny phenomenon that very often when we start to get angry about something, when something starts to get exposed, that's the exact moment when we're already making progress. And it's when no one's talking about something like tax evasion 20 years ago. No one was really thinking about that. That wasn't a big issue. 
And that was actually when it was at its, at its worst. I know um, you mentioned off air that you're writing a new book about the rise of the abolitionist movement. So I've always had a personal negative reaction to true believers of any stripe, even while I recognize that a certain kind of radical true belief often drives history and, and penetrates or forces a break in, in the status quo. You know, Nader's mm-hmm. a good example of that. Some of the abolitionists were clearly a good example of that. You know, these mm-hmm. were people who were who were morally black and white, and that drove their passion in a way that is, was probably necessary in order to end something, you know, that was sort of morally unambiguously wrong. That being said, you know, people like Piketty and people like Zuckman have a certain black and white view of, of wealth, taxes, and the state that I feel, and I'd like your reaction to this, so what, what it misses is the other side of the ledger, which is it's one thing to say that there should be a more equitable non, you know, that, that we should all pay for the commons, essentially, mm-hmm. and that we have mm-hmm. a responsibility to each other. Uh, the challenge that I think is legitimate and is often phrased on the right is that the, the, the institutions that we have created, the government institutions we've created that are supposed to create that equity are often, at least outside of Northern Europe, Mm-hmm. Uh, woefully incompetent and often venal and corrupt themselves. So you, just, you kind of you substitute one level of corruption, which is I'm not going to pay for the commons, mm-hmm. with another level of either incompetence or corruption, which is we're going to take your money and we're actually not going to do a very good job taking care of the commons. Mm-hmm. So like I feel like both sides of that ledger are essential, and yes, and one of the yes. you know Northern Europe is one of the few you know the Scandinavian countries, the Netherlands, Singapore, Taiwan. You know there are few examples of countries that seem to get this more right than not. But there are a whole lot more examples of countries that don't get this right at all. Yeah, yeah. I see that point. Look, I think that quite often on the left, there's a lot of talk about wealth redistribution, which is important, but not enough talk about wealth creation, right? Who are the actual wealth creators? And in that respect, what I've been trying to do with my work is to reframe that question, sometimes to basically just say, look, the real wealth creators are often the maintainers the teachers, the nurses, the care workers, or those who, who have these so-called essential jobs, as we've come to call them during the pandemic. But yeah, it's also about the innovators, about the people who come up with new, amazing solutions to our problems. And that's something that, I mean, Ezra Klein recently wrote this in the New York Times, is that too often the right can all, only look nostalgically to the past, and then the left is completely focused on the injustices of the present. But who actually has the courage to look forward? And this has been a frustration I have for a very long time, actually, since the beginning of my career as a writer, is that so often people only know what they're against, right? They're against uh, the establishment, against racism, against homophobia, against everything, basically. There was even a book published a couple of years ago by a major left-wing intellectual called Against Everything. But at some point, (laughs) you also got to think about what are you actually for? What do you want to create? I've come to call it moral ambition. The, the yearning and the drive to create a better world and to, to make an impact. And the most exciting thing about that is that it's contagious. It's not about your genetics. It's not about your biology. It's not who you are fundamentally as a person. No, it's an idea. And you can be infected with that idea. It's something that Tyler Cowen, the economist, said once, that one of the greatest things or most worthwhile things you can do with your life is to basically increase other people's ambition. And I've never forgot that remark. And I've been ever doing, uh, trying to do that ever since, basically trying to raise other people's levels of ambition. Like whenever they said, I have this plan, I said, well, do that. But, you know, top it up 50% or something like that. Yeah, I sometimes miss that 
spirit um, among my uh, friends on the left. The government of Kenya pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy, as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Emma. They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you going to make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with Everything Everywhere Daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Everywhere Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that you even work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Rucker, I'm kind of doing a uh, top-line view of your greatest hits here. Uh, you've done a lot of work on UBI, universal basic income. And another narrative that we hear on the left a lot is that if there's just if there's just enough money, you know, everything would be fine. Like, everything can be solved by money. And I feel like sometimes with UBI, like my personal hesitation around it is that it seems to be presented as a silver bullet, like that the, certainly there are some people whose problems are caused by money. Mm-hmm. And if they had more money, the problems would be solved. But there are also people in poverty whose problems are not primarily coming from money, right? You know, if you talk to any person suffering from addiction, they could tell you that money is not going to solve that problem. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if you could talk about, about that a little bit. So you, you have that famous phrase, poverty isn't a lack of character, it's a lack of cash. And I was wondering if you thought about this hesitation I've brought up, which I'm sure you have. Sure, yeah. So obviously, poverty is not the only problem in people's lives, right? But if you see a building that's on fire, well, what do you do? The first thing you do is you you call the firefighters. <laughs> you know, they sprinkle water over it. That, that's what you do first. And then you start thinking about all the other problems. And that's also how I think about poverty. I mean, poverty just makes everything worse. There's, there's even evidence that, you know, it impedes your cognitive ability. It impedes your ability to think in the long term, to make plans for the future. Sure, there will always be some people who will waste their basic income. But usually when it comes to richer people, we're not worried about that. We just call it venture capital. And we say, oh, sure, go on and, <laughs> and experiment, try new things. Yes, we should consider basic income as venture capital for the people. I think in general, it will be uh, a pretty great investment. And especially when it comes to poverty, there's, there's a lot of evidence that it actually costs us more money. Poverty is, is it's just too expensive. We can't really afford it. That's what I always believe. Whenever, whenever I'm, say, San Francisco or Los Angeles, I'm always astonished to see so many homeless people on the streets. And what I see there is just an extraordinary waste of human capital. 
I mean, so many people who could have fulfilling lives and who could go on and contribute to the common good. But there they are. I mean, we have a homeless population in the Netherlands here as well, but you would have to walk around for hours in Amsterdam to see as many homeless people uh, as you see in five minutes in San Francisco, probably. But this gets back to something I was saying earlier, which is, you know, particularly in those cities, San Francisco and Los Angeles, the issue is actually not a lack of cash that's being spent to try to ameliorate the problem. Mm. It's the way the cash is being spent to try to ameliorate the problem. Mm. I mean, it's an extraordinary affluent society. No, no matter what its no matter what its issues are, right? It is in aggregate an yeah, extraordinary yeah, yeah, affluent yeah. society yeah. that often spends money publicly in ways that are mind-bogglingly stupid. Yeah. 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 Um, and the, as and opposed the to not spending the money at all. The hypocrisy is astounding as well, right? We've all read the uh Time to Build essay by Mark Andreessen. And I actually love that piece. And like, yeah, let's build. And then you hear that this is the guy who basically he's, he's spending a lot of money to lobby for no construction in his own neighborhood. Right. Right. And I don't want to I don't want to dunk on Mark Andreessen specifically because maybe we're like that as well. I mean, this this nimbyism is, is rampant. You know, NIMBY, NIMBY's been replaced by Banana. Have you heard the new? Oh, no, I haven't so heard if, that. If, NIMBY, so if, if NIMBY is not in my backyard, Banana is built absolutely nothing anywhere near anyone. <laughs> uh, I haven't heard that I like either. that. I like that. Yeah. There's a really great book by Paul Sabin called Public Citizens about what happened in the U.S. basically since the 60s and the 70s and about also how the um, how progressives and specifically progressive lawyers contributed to this. That's why I earlier mentioned Ralph Nader. This public advocacy movement had a lot of victories, did a lot of good, but then also created a huge amount of regulations, for example, environmental regulations that are now being used to block efforts to do something about climate change. It's very, very ironical. And that's, that's a real big problem, specifically in the United States. You guys just have way too many lawyers, man. Too many lawyers. If you're young and if you're ambitious and you want to do something, I mean, the stupidest thing you can do is to go to Harvard Law School. Don't go there. Don't do it. I mean, <laughs> do something useful, please. There are just way too, too many people with the legal mindset. And again, the numbers here are astonishing. Five of the 10 last presidents went to law school. A third of the House of Representatives, half of the Senate. What's going on there? These are all people who have been schooled in procedures, in rules, in regulations. They know how to say no. They know how to stop things from happening. And you basically have a whole class of, of NIMBYs or bananas. <laughs> it's like the banana class. That seems like a, a big problem to me. There should be some kind of law against lawyers. Look, every movement, there are so many different roles to play in every movement, right? And it's not enough just to shout on the south lines or to occupy things, which I'm, I mean, which is necessary as well. I think we need the extinction rebellions as well, but we also need people with the, like an acceptance of, of plodding. Is that a word that you're just willing yeah. to, to do the homework and to know the nitty gritty and all the bureaucratic details, the blocking and tackling about like you, there are people who just have to do the work, you know, as we wrap up, I wanted to maybe have you highlight a little, because it's very much in the spirit of the Progress Network, this idea of maybe infectious utopianism mm -hmm. or infectious idealism in a world where partly why I created this collective is the feeling that we were essentially, you know, we being Western culture, but in 
in many ways, uh, <laughs> one of the downsides of the pandemic, of which there were many, is it kind of plunged everybody everywhere into a kind of collective gloom. Mm -hmm. Like there used to be some sort of bifurcation between the gloom in the Western world and the optimism of China or India or elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I still think that's probably a little more prominent mm -hmm. there. But we're kind of in a, you know, a, a doom scrolling cycle, mm -hmm. not a idealism cycle. Yeah. You know, I wonder, you know, when you look at Europe now, for instance, post Brexit with Ukraine, when you look around the world, do you find that you are kind of a la your, your early abolitionists, you know, a lone voice crying in the wilderness waiting for a change that you may or may not live to see? Or do you feel like there is in fact a, a, a thaw in the, in the global freeze of pessimism. I think there's been a massive change in the zeitgeist. I've recently went to my old student society where I was a member 10 years ago, 10, 12 years ago. And I was astounded by the difference. I mean, kids, at least here in the Netherlands, are way more idealistic than, than we were just, just 10, 15 years ago. When it comes to climate, when it comes to inequality, when it comes to the way we treat animals, so much more awareness. I think that's real progress. And as you said, that can be infectious. I recently wrote a small essay about the psychology of resistance fighters during the Second World War. I was really interested in that question. Like what, what, what determined why some people had the courage to hide Jews and others didn't? And it turns out that there isn't such a thing as the psychology of the resistance hero. There just isn't. It's, it's a complete cross-section of the population, men, women, young, old, rich, poor, educated, not, not educated. It's just, you can't say anything about that. But there is a sociology of resistance. It turns out that it was highly infectious and around 96% of people who were asked to join the resistance said yes. I think that's so liberating, right? You don't have to be this great person that you've always been ever, you know, since, since high school or whatever. No, you can be affected by the idea of, of improving the world and playing your part and being morally ambitious. And what I see and what I would like to contribute to is that vi virus spreading further. And uh, I think that's what you guys are also doing. So uh, thanks for your work. Yeah, this is like the Rucker Bregman, the generous meme instead of Richard Dawkins, the selfish meme or like the utopian meme. Or yeah, something like yeah, that. exactly. <laughs> So Rucker, as we, we totally come to an end here, do you just want to give us an overview of what you're working on? Sure, yeah. So as a historian, I've always been really interested in this question. What does it mean to stand on the right side of history? We can look back on the suffragettes, on the abolitionists, and um, we're very impressed with their courage and their fight in the face of, you know, all this evil. And, and we know the, the tremendous price that they often had to pay for their activism and for their courage. And then I, then I wonder, who are the abolitionists of today? Who are the people that are now being dismissed as utopians, idiots, or maybe even dangerous activists, but who will be seen by the historians of the future as the heroes? That's the focus of my, my next book. I'm interested in, well, what, what actually made the abolitionists effective? Uh, I mean, Zachary, you mentioned that they were, uh, you know, very, very idealistic, but I was actually surprised by how pragmatic they were as well. Extremely pragmatic, actually. 
For example, Thomas Clarkson, one of the main British abolitionists, he was really good at what they call moral reframing. Basically used different arguments to defend the same uh, idea. So for example, with this, the abolition of the slave trade, which he was arguing for, you would, you would guess that they would mainly say, look, the slave trade is horrible because there are so many human beings suffering incredibly, right? So many Africans who are being tortured, blah, blah, blah. That's what we would assume that the abolitionists said. But actually, they focused on a different kind of argument, uh, in, especially in British Parliament. Um, Thomas Clarkson discovered that around 20% of the white sailors died during the voyage. The white sailors, actually the perpetrators. And then Thomas Clarkson realized that that would be a much more powerful political argument in Parliament to use. Now, for us, that's pretty bizarre, right? That they use, mainly use that argument. But it was super effective. It was one of the reasons why the, the prime minister at the time was like, oh, now, oh, now I understand. This slave trade is really bad. 20% of our guys are dying on these voyages. That's horrific. So um, I think that is a really powerful lesson that in the fight against injustice, winning is, is our duty. Right? It's, it's really important <laughs> to get these actual results. And, and uh, that makes the, uh, the case of the British abolitionists really interesting because they were super idealistic, that's true, but they were very pragmatic as well. They wanted to win. Well, I look forward to uh, seeing that arise in, the, I guess, the next couple of years, right? We'll, yeah, we'll take some time. We'll keep an eye it's out It's a lot of work it. writing a book. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time and your thoughts and your work and for being part of the Progress Network. And we will, I hope, continue these conversations over the next months and years. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, everybody, I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco. And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote, nothing was linear. I had to work around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's a time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. But hot there was labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> we, we hear that. <laughs> Political breakdown daily. Every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. That may be a Mark Twain quote, but it's just as true today as when he originally said it. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics is a podcast that compares and contrasts history to the current events of today. Host Bruce Carlson has recently done deep dives on fascinating topics like the fall of the Soviet Union, which sets the stage for today's geopolitics, the man who was in prison and still won a million votes for the presidency, and the mystery behind George Washington's involvement, or lack thereof, in the Bill of Rights. 
My History Can Beat Up Your Politics offers deep context to all these historic stories, especially those that you may think you know well, and is particularly adept at relating them to current events. So don't miss out. Listen to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics on all platforms. Emma, that was a provocative conversation with a unusual soul. I certainly like this idea, and of course we would like this idea of ideas being infectious, ideas being something that build to a critical mass and then suddenly spreads like wildfire in a way that isn't always expected and not always predictable, and, and then there you have it, which means that a certain climate of unremitting gloom can suddenly give way to something else. And I like the fact that someone who has a critical and progressive, you know, different from the Progress Network, progressive in kind of the, the left sense of the word progressive, is not, as Rutger talked about, you know, necessarily purely focusing on problems and what they're against. Yeah, he is definitely a rare bird in that way. You know, most people, when they think about the left, they think about the unrelenting focus on all the bad things that we need to fix. So he's rare, and I feel like he also comes to things with a real like cheerfulness of demeanor. You know, like sometimes you meet people and they have infectious ideas to share with a, a demeanor that doesn't match. But Rucker is like, I don't know, like you really you, you understand why he, you know, he's been so popular and his ideas have caught on because I think he just really approaches them with this kind of enthusiasm for wanting to do good. Um, and I think he's right, too, that the zeitgeist has started to change around that. I think I've seen it in the last couple of years that we've launched the Progress Network. You know, we did, you and I did an interview with um, a podcast team that was, let's say, younger. And I remember with them, at least, some of our attempts to talk about things in a more, you know, not optimistic, but the, kind of the way that we're trying to talk about things in the patois of the Progress Network, right? Like, more problem solving, more focus on what's working, more focus on things that are kind of better than we think, that struck a really difficult note with them. You know, they were almost angry and felt, again, that, that somehow that focus was undermining the urgency of how bad things are. And it would be great to juxtapose the conversation we just had with, with that sensibility as a way of saying, you can simultaneously be urgent about things that are systemically broken and and not be completely despairing and dyspeptic. Yeah, and and just just keeping perspective, right? Like it's it's remarkable how quickly our perspective starts to warp just depending like what Rucker was talking about if you make median wage, I think he's talked specifically about the Netherlands, you're in the top 3.5% of wealth in the world, right? Like wow, wow. Um, that means I think he points out that you have a lot of responsibility and it's crazy that you could be in that position in the Europe or US or elsewhere and simultaneously adopt this attitude of almost constant complaint right. that you see sometimes on the left. And I say that with love. Uh, I, you know, I don't say that to take anyone down, but it's it's fascinating how those two things can coexist. So shall we turn to uh, what's going on in the world? OK, so our first piece of news that we have for today um, is actually from a couple months ago. 
but I think it really passed under the radar and it has to do with a conversation that we have with Rutger about the power of money. Congress, in a bipartisan fashion, actually voted to increase funding to the Global Fund to fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. SALT's funding from the U.S. grow from $1.6 billion to $2 billion. That's more than 28% year-over-year boost. And what's cool about that is because of the way the fund operates, if the U.S. pledges more money, the other countries in the fund are also kind of forced to pledge more money, which just means more money going into something that has been proven to work pretty well. Um, the Global Fund says something like 50 million lives saves over the last, I think, maybe 30 years. That hasn't been super studies. We don't know if that number is exactly correct, but a lot of lives have been saved by that money. This is all about saving lives. There's no ambiguity here. Working with partners to ensure that all communities are healthy and strong, at least have a shot at being healthy and strong. That people everywhere can live in dignity. Today, we've seen some historic pledges to keep building on this incredible record. Almost 1.6 billion, I think I got it right, euros from France, 1.3 billion from Germany, 1 billion dollars from Japan, 1.2 billion dollars from Canada, 750 million euros from the European Commission, and significant increases in the private sector, Qatar, Republic of Korea, and from nations that themselves receive global fund grants, like Malawi and Niger, also contributed. And as I pledge to all of you, the United States will donate $1 billion for every $2 billion committed by the rest of the world. And again, that highlights something we've talked about two times on the show and you've highlighted in the newsletter, which is the, the primary focus on what goes on in Washington is all the things that don't work and, and the laws not passed and Congress being broken and sclerotic and you know, nothing happens. And we talked to Eric Swalwell, Congressman. We talked to Jeff Collier, former governor of Kansas. We talked to Bob Hertzberg, who was the outgoing Senate Majority Leader in California, to try to highlight, like, there are all these bills that are being passed all the time at a, in a bipartisan fashion that we just don't pay attention to, mostly because they don't attract controversy. So you get this funding bill for something that most people agree is a good thing. Um, and it doesn't get news because most people agree it's a good thing, and therefore it's not news. Because everyone agreed, no one fought, there weren't hyperbolic statements. They just decided this was something we need to spend money on, we need to support globally. There's a big consensus that this is something that we have the money for, that we should use the money for. And so we're gonna spend it that way. All of which is great. But then it attracts no notice, because it's <clears throat> sort of seen as uninteresting, and that's part of the problem. It's too simple. There are no hard edges to sink our teeth into, but <laughs> we're doing our best here on the podcast. So after that, the right to disconnect might be coming to Africa. So the right to disconnect, for people who don't know, it's the laws that are in place for employers not being able to contact employees after hours or on weekends. Now, soon it may be difficult for employers to call their employees after official working hours. Nandi Senator Samson Chiragay has introduced amendments to the Employment Act to protect employees from working beyond the stipulated eight working hours or even calling them after hours. The move is, however, receiving strong opposition, with both the Central Organization of Trade Unions and the Federation of Kenya Employers warning that this could lead to job losses and scare away potential investors. But as Brenda Zeda Radido now reports, employees, on the other hand, 
have welcomed the proposed legislation. Right now, France, Italy, Belgium, Spain, Ireland, and parts of Canada and Australia have enacted laws around this. And now Kenya is going to be the first African nation to discuss it. So Parliament is discussing it this month. We'll see if they pass anything. But I think that most people listening to this would probably be in support. Does this mean I won't be able to reach you now? <laughs> well, you know, Greece has not signed on. Also, we have a time zone difference going yeah, so on, which makes things, makes things more How difficult. is that going to work? <laughs> Which which hours will you have a right to disconnect from? <laughs> Actually, that's a really good... I didn't think about that in terms of remote work and how that functions. Let's say you're a French employee working outside of France. Can your French employer contact you? I don't know. I'll have to look into that. Wow. It's a, it's a wrinkle. It's a disturbance in the force. <laughs> what to do about remote work, globally disconnected time zones? in a right-to-disconnect law. Okay, we're going to have to table that one for the time being. It's things to think about going forward. Yep. And another thing to think about going forward, so this is another trend, very much so on the early side. Uh, Switzerland is the only country so far that allows the therapeutic use of psilocybin, so you know the stuff that's in shrooms, the active ingredient in shrooms, and MDMA to treat depression for psilocybin and PTSD with MDMA. They do it in a very limited fashion. And then people listening to the podcast probably know that Oregon in the U.S. also has, they also allow that. Australia just became the next country to allow it. MDMA and psilocybin, psychedelics found in magic mushrooms and ecstasy, are now said to be used on patients with mental health conditions across Australia. A former Defence Force chief has been campaigning to use MDMA on veterans. The people I work with in my not-for-profit uh, post-traumatic stress disorder Australia New Zealand tell me that the only way we will ever cure post-traumatic stress disorder in people is, to, is the use of psychedelic drugs. Today's drug approval will only be prescribed to people with post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. Starting in the summertime in 2023, psychiatrists will be able to prescribe MDMA and psilocybin. There's a lot of rules around that and they're kind of like they're not sure how exactly it's all going to work, um, but they are an ed it seemed to me like there was a lot of surprise around Australia being essentially the first slash second country to do this. Yeah, I have to say, one of the things that's happened in my lifetime that has surprised me perhaps the most is how quickly uh, attitudes about the legalization of formerly illegal drugs has moved culturally. I suppose that and kind of broad acceptance of, of gay marriage, right? The two things that seemed as late as uh, the early 2000s to be a generation away from having any, you know, major cultural change. And it, look, this is, I'm not saying that as, as an advocate of everyone should go out and, you know, take chocolate shrooms. It's from the perspective of most of these substances, whether they're legal substances like SSRIs or Valium or MDMA or mushrooms or acid or pot, you know, they're all uh, abusable and they're all usable. And they're usable from both sort of pleasurable reasons, and they're usable for therapeutic reasons. And figuring out the risks and figuring out the uses is complicated and requires a lot of time, effort, hopefully with some degree of 
neutrality, meaning without a priori prejudice about where the study of those results will lead. I mean, that's an idealism that I know isn't happening anytime soon. Neutrality and the study of of, of drug side effects <laughs> is not something we're going to get to anytime soon. But at least it's a it's an opening where we're both simultaneously scrutinizing drugs that are legal, you know, that are FDA authorized, and, and taking a harder look at are those things potentially harmful, even though they've been deemed helpful. And on the flip side, looking at things that we've thought were harmful and wondering if they could be helpful. And I, th I think that and a kind of a lessening of law enforcement and puritanism and the amount of money and time that we spend creating an endless cycle of of a incarceration in the United States uh, around the purveyance of the use of the selling of you know drugs that are classified as illegal. I think all that has been just a massively positive change. A lot more work to do, but still. That's funny that you you bring up the change because I was just on a podcast and and the host was in his fifties or sixties, and I was talking about how I gone to Buddhism, which happens to do ha happens to involve some use of psychedelics. And I said something like, you know, nothing hard, just LSD, shrooms kind of thing. And, and he was like, well, in my day, that was a hard drug. And I was like, well, you know, not anymore. I think like in my generation, for sure, it's, it's just considered, it, it does have this flavor of like, it helps with psychiatric things. It's, it's not considered to be that kind of hard drug anymore. Um, and I'm very curious to see where this is gonna go in the next 10, 20 years. Right, and the trends clearly are to remove the state's use of, of power and violence to enforce a regime that criminalizes the use of these substances, which is very different than saying you should use them, right? The non-criminalization of alcohol is not a, an invocation of everyone should go drink. It's simply saying that this is not an area where the state should be involved and in you know, creating cycles of crime and punishment around the use of them. So I think that's an incredibly positive development in the world today. Huzzah. And uh, yeah, huzzah and, and Australia sounds like it's being very careful about it for, for those who may, who may be hearing this and worrying about it. But if you're an Australian, you may be able to ask your psychiatrist about it. There you go. <laughs> that's it for today. <laughs> we look forward to... Uh, engaging all of you for the next months as we continue these conversations. We're certainly here for suggestions, so go onto the progressnetwork.org site and if you want to send us ideas, in addition to signing up for the newsletter, in addition to listening to the podcast, we are, as they say, all ears. Hope to hear from you, and thank you, Zachary. Thanks, Emma. Until next time. What Could Go Right is produced by Andrew Steven, executive produced by Jeff Umbro and The Plug Glomerate. To find out more about What Could Go Right, The Progress Network, or to join the What Could Go Right newsletter, visit theprogressnetwork.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>